the questions that we've heard repeated often throughout this pandemic is the question, is God saying something to us through this pandemic? Is he trying to get our attention? Is he calling us to repentance? Is this a sign that his return is imminent? There is always this desire, especially in times like these, to try to make sense of what God is doing or what God is saying. And it reminds me a lot of the blind man uh, in, G- in John chapter 9, when Jesus healed the blind man, uh, the disciples asked him, you know, who caused this man to be blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Who was behind this man's suffering? It's in our nature to want to know. Who can we blame? You know, who, at least how can we explain what's happening? Did we sin? Did we cause this pandemic? If not, who did? Or did God send this? On us, or at least is God allowing this to happen? We want to know, and worst of all, we want the God who created the universe, who exists outside of time, to tell us right now what is happening. Many of us have spent our lives and we have never tasted suffering. And while undoubtedly some of you have tasted true suffering in this life, for the majority of us, this is the very first time in our lifetimes we have witnessed our world endures something of this magnitude. And what I've noticed, and this is definitely a good thing, is that there's been this increased sensitivity to God's voice in this season. It seems like everywhere you look, God is speaking. At least that's what's been my experience. You know, whether it's in prayer, through prophetic words, old Bible stories coming alive, worship lyrics that seem to have a new meaning in ways that they never did before. God is speaking, it seems like, all the time. And I remember praying one Sunday morning as we gathered in pre-service prayer in Canada. We were praying, and I was thinking to myself, in all that God is speaking to us, is it because God is speaking more loudly in this season, or is it that finally we are learning how to listen more clearly? Now, C.S. Lewis once wrote that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. That pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so the question is, is God saying something to us through this pandemic? Well, in one sense, yes, I believe God is speaking because God is always speaking. God is always calling us. His word is always proceeding from his mouth. It's we who not have always been listening. And I think that if anything, what this pandemic has done, it has taught us once again how to hear the voice of God that has undoubtedly been numbed through our comfort, our pleasure, and our prosperity. While I believe that God is saying something to us in this pandemic, I don't think, however, that God is speaking something to us through this pandemic. Why? Well, because God doesn't need a pandemic to speak to us. You know, some have suggested, is this pandemic God's call to repentance? Is this his judgment or perhaps even a sign of his end times? But calls to repentance, judgment, and Christ's return don't come through natural disasters, plagues, or famines. They come to us through Jesus and his word. There is no hidden message that God has hidden secretly inside this pandemic for only the very best of Christians to decode and discover. I think we need to resist the urge to always have a conclusion of what God is doing or to have to speak on God's behalf every time God does something that is outside of our understanding. It reminds me of the book of Job. 
And when you read the book of Job, you see that Job's friends tried exactly that. They tried to conclude and to speak on God's behalf on why God was doing what he was doing. But as you know, if you've ever read the book of Job, it didn't work out too well for them, did it? If there's anything, though, that I believe that God is saying to us through this pandemic, it is what God has always said to his people in difficult times like this, that I am still in control that I am still seated on the throne, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am patient and I am steadfast in seeing my plans and purposes accomplished. The gates of hell will not stop me from building my kingdom, from establishing my church. My ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts greater than your thoughts. But when you suffer, I suffer with you. I am beside you. If you have sinned, return to me with all your heart, with prayer and a spirit of repentance, and I will forgive you and heal you. Weep with those who weep. Care for the widow and the orphan in their distress. Take care of those in need. And don't be afraid, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Yes, the rain will fall. The wind will come, the floods will pour, but when you build your life on the solid rock, you will not fall. Your foundation will stand secure. And finally, what I believe that God is saying to us through this pandemic is in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, because it is I who have overcome this world. What role does spiritual conflict play in what we see today? Most of us live unaware of the realm of the spirit because the realm of the tangible, of the here and now of what we can see and what we can touch and what we can taste often distracts us from the influence of the unseen realm. This works very well for our spiritual enemy because if we were aware of how often we play right into his hands, we would stop and think about what we're doing. We must be cautious because we can actually give the devil either too much attention or too little attention. For, we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, the devil has one plan in mind since the very beginning. He wants all the glory. He wants our worship. He wants our allegiance. And he wants to be exalted over everything else. And his plans for us are to separate us from God by robbing, stealing, and ultimately destroying us. He is out for blood, not flesh and blood in the natural, but to drain the very life of salvation by grace from our spirit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. The realm of the spirit operates under a legal system, and our spiritual enemy has legal access to what we give him. When we break God's law, when we sin, when we have habitual sin habits in our lives, we open up ourselves to the enemy to have legal access to rob, to kill, and to eventually destroy 
all the gifts of life and peace that God has sent us through Jesus, his son, by grace. Our sin has grave effects on the world around us. But the greatest blindness that each and every one of us has is that because of our, our sin nature is our own participation with these works of darkness. The Bible says that our sinful desires are inside of us and that our spirit is literally at war with our flesh. Do you think that's an exaggeration? There's literally a battle raging in the spirit realm over you and within us every single day. But I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. What happened in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world was Satan awakened Eve to pride, ego, to be like God, to have the ability to judge what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And this is the sole desire of Satan himself from the beginning. He's a fallen angel who wanted to be like God. And this is the exact way that he tempts you and I today. Our unawareness of the spiritual conflict all around us makes us believe that the decisions that we're making, the way we feel, the way we think, the opinions that we have about ourselves and the world around us are right and justified. Pride starts in us and is expressed in the world, creating brokenness everywhere. You see, the story of redemption began with the law, but it wasn't just about breaking the law or the Ten Commandments. No, when Jesus came to the earth, he confronted the very motives of our heart, our thoughts and our feelings, and said, even if you think about adultery, or even if you lust with your eyes just by looking, you've already done it. He said, you must forgive again and again and again, even when the hurts keep coming. This is literally the flesh and the spirit at war with each other. Jesus didn't come to try to make our lives harder. No, he came to show us a better way. You see, the only way to be free from the entanglement of the enemy of our soul is the way of love. The enemy tempts you with freedom and liberty only to make you a slave to the desires that brought you momentary pleasure. Jesus came so that you may have abundant life. We will never fully understand the realm of the spirit because we live in the natural. However, we experience the effects of this realm every single day. And we need eyes to see and to be able to discern the effects of the spirit realm. The truth is we cannot overcome the enemy on our own. We need the power and the authority of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to overcome the works of the enemy in our lives. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The scriptures give us answers to every kind of sin and evil, firstly addressing our own participation with sin, Secondly, the pain we've experienced as, the res as a result of someone else's sin. And thirdly, the pain and turmoil that comes from the testing of our spiritual enemy and the brokenness we see in the world around us. Repentance, confession, healing, submission, obedience, crucify your flesh and its desires, die to yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Intense? 
Yes, it's a war. But this is your promise. Salvation, redemption, forgiveness, authority over darkness, freedom, liberty, life, spiritual gifts, and love. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. What role does spiritual conflict play in what we see today? It's in everything. Our world is a broken place. The influence of darkness is everywhere. Christ has given us the answer, a hope in the midst of the darkness, a promise of freedom and life, but not the absence of struggle. But instead, he's given us the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What are two words that we hear all the time now on the television sets, in the news, we hear about conspiracy theories. So would you believe if I told you that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had children whose descendants are alive today? You would shake your head. What if I said to you that Jesus and Christianity were created by a secret society in the Roman Empire to have a one-state religion that would bring unity? What if I said to you Jesus fainted on the cross and his disciples took his body, and they said he was resurrected. Well, we find these things in the Scriptures in Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15, that bring clarity to our hearts and to our lives. In the midst of all the confusion, in the midst of all the deception, in the midst of all of the agendas that are hidden that come out in conspiracy theories, here's exactly what the Scripture says about the resurrection. Verses 11 to 15, Matthew 28, while they were going... Behold, some of the soldiers went into the city and told the chief priests all the things that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and this is what they said to the soldiers. Tell people his disciples came by night, stole him away while we were all asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." And so they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread amongst the Jews to this day. And so conspiracy theories are unproven. They are meant to deceive. They are meant to suppress the truth and to put forward someone else's version of what they want people to believe. We saw this in abundance in the elections in the United States recently, and now we see it when it surrounds COVID-19. Conspiracy theories are abounding on social media. And sadly, well-meaning Christians are being deceived by prophecy that has failed. Facts have been distorted. Believers now are more polarized than they've ever been before. And Christianity is being scandalized. And so the two commands that we have as followers of Jesus are to obey authority and to love our neighbor. All of that has gone out the window with so many of these conspiracy theories, and people are now becoming so disillusioned. As we've heard already that Satan is the god of this world system, 
That means he tells lies and he deceives, and he works in the hearts and lives of people that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, and because humanity is bound by this issue called sin, and we're sinners, what often happens is our motives are often evil. So followers of Jesus are admonished in Scripture not to identify with cultural values and societal norms, but rather to understand truth and to have truth open your heart to what it is that God wants to do. For example, in Isaiah 8, you never realize that conspiracy theories were there in the Old Testament as well. And God has a word to say about that, and he says it through Isaiah. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear, and he is the one you are to dread. And so when you talk about conspiracy theories, you're really talking about gossip. You're talking about slander because people's reputations get attacked. And the Bible tells us to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations that only lead to quarreling. What I've noticed is that the Christian testimony has really been tarnished in the last little while, particularly in the area of prophecy, because a lot of the things that were said polarized believers on one side or on the other. And I want to just finish by sharing a couple of things that as followers of the Lord, let's follow his teachings and let's lead the way by examples as good citizens, but also members of an eternal kingdom. Jesus said seven things that I want you to tuck in your heart regarding his word. One was that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every single word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when truth comes in, conspiracy theories go out. When confidence in God comes in, then your instability is resolved. And the second thing he says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. And so when we prophesy, it must be in accordance with Scripture. Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, this is that. He was pointing back to Joel's prophecy. And that's what we do over and over again. John 10, Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. It's the truth. In John 17, your word is truth. And so Scripture is historically reliable. It describes the Old Testament events and then helps us understand the fulfillment of those in the New Testament. For example, Jesus said when Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, he's talking about the resurrection and what was going to happen in his own heart and his own life. He validated history. He validated prophetic events. And who else can do that with 100% accuracy? None of us can do that. No conspiracy theory can be 100% accurate. There's always a little bit of truth in it with a little bit of error, and it takes captive those who are looking for something that will ultimately be deceptive to them. Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about Noah, and he says the Son of Man's going to come in such a way as that when you look at your culture, all of the things that are normative, they're going to be the same things when he comes into the world. And finally, in Matthew 15, he says to the <clears throat> elders in his day, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? So let us, as followers of Jesus, admit that we must be about our Father's business 
eternal things that transform the hearts and the lives of people and help us to be able to extend eternal values that will last forever and forever and forever. That's the kingdom you and I are a part of. Timothy says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and the life to come. So conspiracy theories will abound, but ultimately they will fail. And you want to put your heart and your mind and your life in that which will last forever. And so make sure that your eyes are stamped with eternity and your heart is secure in him. How can remembering what God has done provide hope for how God desires to move? As I share for the next few minutes about remembrance, I want to just say how critical it is that we just don't remember, but that we are mindful in what we are remembering. And let's take a, let's take a look at a story in the Bible. Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God desired to redeem and rescue them. They had seen the magnificent power of God as plagues came upon Egypt. They were rescued during Passover. They were led out of Egypt with a pillar of fire and by cloud. They were led through the sea, and then God defeated their enemies. They were then taken into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And God every day provided manna from heaven, bread from heaven, for them to eat. And as they're in the wilderness, they begin to complain and grumble. And they begin to look back into Egypt and remember the wrong thing. They begin to focus on the food they had in Egypt because they were disheartened with the manna they were eating every day. Doesn't that sound crazy? We can become so agitated as we read about Israel through the Bible as the same pattern repeated itself with them being rescued and redeemed by God and them going back to forget God, to become ungrateful, to worship other gods, and the same pain and hardship began to come upon them. God remained faithful as they remained faithless. But church, we are no different. For if you're like me, I can look back at seasons in my life and I can focus on pain and hardship. I can even have a longing to go back, perceiving it was better. I can look back at seasons where I feel like God has disappointed me and I can look at unanswered prayers and unanswered dreams and I can replay over and over the remembrance of these things. And it begins to intertwine with my present feelings of anger, resentment, shame, lack, and doubt. And I can just feel stuck. But when I choose to remember these seasons with the lens of the goodness and the faithfulness of God, it does not diminish the hardship and pain, but it elevates my heart and spirit with gratitude and with hope that propels me forward to know that God is with me and my future is filled with more of his goodness. For it says in Psalm 23, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The word remembrance appears consistently throughout scripture. And God tells us, he doesn't suggest it, he tells us to remember him, to remember his faithfulness and his goodness, to not forget him, and to acknowledge that it is him that is sustaining us. 
Today, God is calling us to enlarge our faith in him for today and for tomorrow. And how we do this is by recognizing his goodness in our past, remembering the history of his faithfulness. Being mindful of what we remember from our past is critical. For being mindful of what we remember cultivates our heart posture for all that God has for our future. When we intentionally remember what God has done, when we take time to recall all the moments he's cared for us, provided for us, healed us, caused all things to work together, it will anchor us in peace that he holds the future and we can be assured of his faithfulness. The past faithfulness of God points us to a solid future on a God who will remain faithful. Let me say that again. The past faithfulness of God points us to a solid future on a God who will remain faithful. We can completely depend to be on him to be faithful in the future, for he is a promise, covenant-keeping God. Psalm 138.2 says, He backs up his promises by the honor of his name. Wow. God is backing up his promises with the guarantee of his name on it. We can be sure he will be faithful. God reminds Israel over and over that he is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? To remember his faithfulness to all generations. God reminds the Israelites of the exploits he did in Egypt and during the Passover. Why? So they would remember his protection and provision. God reminds us in the sky with a rainbow. Why? So we would remember he is a covenant promise-keeping God. And Jesus reminds us in the New Testament to take communion regularly. As it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 24, do this in remembrance of me. Why? So we would remember God's redemption and stand in awe of the gift of the cross that Jesus made and paid on our behalf for salvation. In my own life, I have to be intentional to remember the goodness of God. And here are a few practical steps I've used. I took a course, and it had me map out all the milestones of my life, the good, the bad, the struggles, the successes. And beside each milestone, I specifically wrote how God has been faithful. And that was a powerful, powerful practice. I also every day have a thankfulness journal, and I write what I'm thankful for, specifically what God is doing in my life today or what he has just recently done. So I am reminded of his faithfulness. As well, I take communion often. I want to encourage you. You don't have to wait to come to church to take communion. Take communion often. Jesus says, and as often as you do this, do this in remembrance. It's our way of remembering that all we have and all that we are is found through the gift of salvation and the gift of the cross. We are made new in Christ. God is calling us to be mindful in our remembrance of him. For when we see his goodness and his trail of faithfulness in our lives, we are secure in knowing that he keeps his promises and he always will. We can have confident hope for our future is secure. For God will remember you. We remember him and he always remembers us. And I want to close with this scripture found in Malachi 3.16. For those who feared the Lord spoke with each other and the Lord listened to what they said. In his presence, a scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared him and always thought about the honor of his name.
for the change that you desire most to see. Which direction are you looking? We find ourselves in a season of revealing, and what is surfacing may not be your fault, but each of us bears responsibility for our lives, our church, and our world today. Specifically, we each hold a measure of faith and responsibility for change. You may be frustrated with your own heart. Towards God, it can be hard, it can be divided, or it can be devoted. Perhaps you're frustrated with others in this season who don't see the world the way you see the world or the way at least you think the world should be or could be. We desire change so desperately. We often ignore warnings like the one in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. You know, Jesus says that his kingdom advances through tiny seeds and tilled hearts towards him and towards others. God's kingdom is not fragile, but we are. And how we treat one another matters. Today, if you lean left, the problem is those nuts on the right. And if you lean right, the problem may be those out-of-touch elites on the left. Because the issue is them. Why would you work hard to lovingly correct someone when you can simply cancel them? Why try to change here when I can guilt-free just focus out there? For followers of Jesus, the issue isn't which way you lean. It is where your hope for change lives. The right preaches a lot about repression. The right speaks often about victory and winning and conquering. You get all these things, but they come at the expense often of another. But never mind this because you deserved it. You deserve it. You got yours and they can go get theirs. This is hardly a message found in the gospel. And the left preaches a lot about release, freedom, living your own truth, liberation from whatever or whomever. Yet all these things too come at the expense of another. But oftentimes the message here is never mind this. Because you're being liberated from the right others. You're being liberated from those who deserve to lose. This too, hardly, is a message found in the gospel. Because rooting our hope in left or right solutions is only ever a win or lose equation. Jesus calls us to be transformed by something different than right repression or left release. What Jesus said takes humility, the power of the Holy Spirit, all of us as the body of Christ, and living with the measure of faith you have been entrusted. To discern what needs to be repressed or released, Jesus said daily we need our hearts, our lives reoriented on him. And unless this happens, unless our lives are reoriented on Jesus every day, at most, we are blind guides prophesying from shallow ditches. Musicians playing songs with instruments so badly out of tune. Making noise when we were purposed to make change. Jesus said the problem isn't only on the right or the left. It's in here. 
Change doesn't merely come with age. It arrives when we accept responsibility for what is. Jesus said, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. You know, unless we see how good and holy and wise God is, we won't quite get how we are just not those things. Beth Moore said in relation to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 in the trap, she said this, One of the enemy's most delicious victories happens when those who have called out the sins of others fall into those same sins themselves. And we never think this will be or happen to us. But it is happening to us again and again. In this season of revealing, don't look away, but also guard your heart from being shaped by social media or cable news. Do something significant before you look left or look right. Courageously look up and let the Holy Spirit show you what's going on within you, not just what is occurring around you. This small, significant change changes us and can once again even change the world. How will we know if we are being changed by this small decision to look up rather than around? How will we know that we are being transformed? Well, in time, you will, know, you will find yourself no longer saying a version of God, thank you, that I am not like them. Instead, Jesus will teach you to pray, God, would you transform my dead heart, my divided heart, my hard heart, by giving me a new heart, a covenant heart, a devoted heart towards you and towards those you love. Because those you love, it turns out, are just like me. You see, people who desire to be more like Jesus, they walk with limps, not with swagger. They invite Jesus to heal their own thorn instead of throwing them at others. They post with holy pause and not self-righteous pleasure. For the change you desire most to see, which direction are you looking? Before looking left or right, be more like Jesus by learning to daily look up. John Tyson recently said, what matters most in life is passion for the one true God and then compassion for the people he created. The rest is just commentary. So why settle for commentary when we were created to make a Jesus-sized difference? Together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take these conversations today. We thank you that your word never returns void. And so, Lord, would you speak to our hearts today about what you are saying in this season, about understanding the spiritual realities, the spiritual conflict that we live in. Lord, may your word, may truth pierce conspiracy. Father, may we remember you 
We remember that you're a faithful God. Give us courage to look up, not merely left or right. Father, we surrender and we submit our hearts to you. Help us in this season be more like you. And so on behalf of every one of us today, it's been our pleasure worshiping with you. We pray that this day, God will move in your heart, your family. And so may Jesus bless you and may he keep you. Thank you.